0: When you go through something where someone can label you as crazy or insane, you're automatically considered an unreliable narrator. So I knew that if I were to write this through the nonfiction lens, I would be fighting that assumption. And so it made more sense to do this through the lens of fiction, because then, you know, there's far more of an understanding that, well, everyone is in a sense an unreliable narrator,
1: I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest is the Mohawk writer and author Alicia Elliott, author of an award-winning book of essays, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground, and a New Novel, And Then She Fell. It's a story of a young woman named Alice, experiencing the stress of new motherhood, feeling isolated in Toronto, which feels far away, culturally more than physically, from where she grew up on Six Nations, while also trying to carve out time for writing Keeping Up Appearances as the Wife of a Rising Academic Star. Alicia Elliott, welcome to Kobo.
0: Thanks for having me. It's so good to be here.
1: So I'll say right now, for the benefit of listeners, yes, there are some heavy, hard themes in this book, and we're going to look and talk about some of them. But it's also a funny book. The longest chapter in this book is called, and I quote: "This is a long one, so get some snacks and get comfortable." <laughs> and, <laughs> and it is representative in its in its tone. So, I, I you know, listen with care, but it is absolutely worth sticking with us. I briefly described Alice's situation in the intro just now, and I was hoping you might introduce us to Alice as we find her at the start of and then she fell
0: so alice kind of um was wrapped up in her own kind of uh daily dance i suppose um caring for her mother who has um who went through an accident her father had passed away when when she was young and so she was very used to kind of um living uh a life where she was kind of hoping for something more but never even and in some ways not even daring to hope for something more. She was kind of like I'm I'm living on Six Nations. I'm, I'm living with my mom, like you know, I'm I'm working at, you know, an under the table job at the Bingo Hall and like everything is how it's going to be. And you know, when she meets her husband her future husband Steve, everything kind of opens up there's all these different possibilities that she had never thought that would actually be possible for her um that are now introduced and so you know he has so many things to offer in in the traditional sense you know the idea that he's he comes from a very wealthy family he um has a very stable career um you know he is yes he's a white guy but he is Interested in her culture, in Haudenosaunee culture, and she he he ingratiates himself with her community and and people like him and everything, and including her mother. And so it all feels very good, you know, initially is this relationship. And in some ways, it you know you could see how kind of um, Steve's mother who, you know has is worlds away from Six Nations she's a very wealthy white woman um, who c- can gift her her son a house in Toronto which, which should give you some indication of how much money she has um and how different their worlds are so you would you could see how she would be like oh this native girl from the res you're marrying her she's like getting so much from this and 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 you know someone might think I think that, he, that Steve isn't getting as much in return, but if you were to look at it kind of, I guess, sideways or from another perspective, um, because Steve is kind of this academic who's involved in all of this, you know, um, in, in, in making indigenous um, uh, knowledge, his kind of academic niche, he's actually benefiting greatly Um, Academically, he has um, now he has a native um, wife when she gets when uh, Alice gets pregnant and has their baby, he has now um, uh, a native daughter so in some ways that kind of solidifies his place in that niche that he's made for himself. And so he he goes on. He's going to learn Mohawk um, that you know they offer at the university, and that's going to be great. But also, Alice has never had the opportunity to learn Mohawk, and so you know there's these kind of weird things that are at play in their relationship that make it more and more kind of who is actually benefiting here? Um, Because you know Alice is being kept away from her community now that she's a mother and she's by herself in this house in Toronto, in this community where. She, does, she is coded as other, as less than, even in terms of class, like how she looks when she goes outside. People don't think she belongs there. And so it kind of is this weird, almost like gothic situation, even though it's set in the middle of downtown Toronto, right? or well, not downtown, but, you know, in, in the city in Toronto.
1: One of the things that you're, you're so good at in this book is like the unwinding of those different feelings of discomfort that come as you're as you're feeling unwelcome or isolated in a in a space and how that can start to change into something that feels more like menace Mm -hmm. because she doesn't just feel like a fish out of water it starts to feel threatening for her over time
0: yes yes and um i think that that's something that Um, I really wanted to play with because there is this notion that, you know, so often when someone who is coming from some sort of marginalized identity is being kind of faced with discrimination or something like that. Especially this, there's this very particular kind of Canadian polite discrimination, which can, has this veneer of respectability. And so it looks, so it has that, that plausible deniability built into it. So you can say, why did you say that to me? And and someone would be like, what do you mean? I was just complimenting you on your beautiful hair that I touched without your permission and was talking about how it was so beautiful. It reminds me of Pocahontas, you know, to give some a random kind of example, right? Um, and so, you know, it hides behind this, oh, I was just complimenting you. And so in that sense, there's always this kind of duality of like, was that actually something that was racist and harmful or were that, was it, was not harmless actually, as they're claiming it was. And I wanted to really kind of play up that duality, that, that, um, ability to hide intentions. And so in that sense, the reader too is kind of put in this position where it's like is this something that uh she should really be worried about or is she thinking too much about this and I think that that was something that you know um when uh, kind of bringing in some of the genre elements t- um talking about kind of like so sort of like I was mentioning the gothic or the horror parts is like you know what is real what is not real and that kind of, and um and what is menacing and what is harmless. And these are the that's the kind of play that's constantly happening around her.
1: And this, of course, presses not just against what do you hear versus the message that a speaker is delivering, but also gets into questions of you know what what of your own mind can you trust mm. more broadly? And and this book is not autobiography, but it is informed by firsthand experience. To be clear, you are not Alice. Steve, <laughs> Alice's husband, seems like he is not a representation <laughs> of your, your husband, Mike, no. who you thank in the acknowledgments. <laughs> but the way that people treat Alice and how it feels to be her—that that is something that you have experience of both through... The experience of your mother's mental illness and then an experience that you yourself had in the summer of 2020. And I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about those parts of your own experience and how they informed this book.
0: Yeah, for sure. So um, you know it um I talk a bit about um, my mother in my first book, uh, which is nonfiction and her own experience of bipolar disorder with schizophrenic elements and how i saw that as a like throughout my life as a child into adulthood from the outside and you know it was always it always felt very mysterious to me because my mother would not talk about it with me she wouldn't talk about the in- interior way of looking at it and how that experience felt to her so all i had was kind of this lens that you know um in many ways society and also my father and um and and all of this misunderstanding or or not understanding of of what that experience actually is like on the inside, and so I kind of had that and pushed it onto my mother. So even in writing that piece, it was still it all still felt very mysterious to me. Um, I still had these unacknowledged um, biases, I suppose you would call them, about um, what someone who is in a state of psychosis or mania is like. And what you and how you should treat them. And so, you know, there was this notion that, you know, when my mother was manic, you can't believe anything she's saying. She's lying about everything. She's never going to remember any of this anyway. So you can say whatever you want to her or treat her. Or it's going to be like it's never there when she comes back. And um, and when she would come back, she wouldn't talk about it. So it felt true. And, you know, then, um, as you kind of mentioned, then I was already researching for this book and I had already decided that Alice was going to have postpartum psychosis. And um, so I was reading um, in, you know, um, the summer of 2020, I was reading kind of this research. There's not a lot of research surrounding this particular phenomenon of postpartum psychosis in particular, Um Uh, It's most of the most people know about postpartum depression, but not um, postpartum anxiety or postpartum psychosis. And so I was doing this research and, um, you know, things were happening in my personal life that um, made it so that I was incredibly stressed. And, you know, in August of 2020, I had um, a manic and psychotic episode, they were kind of combined. And then that's when I I guess I, I realized all of the flaws in how I understood, um, that experience to be and what would happen to when you are on the inside of that experience. And so, you know, um, I saw people, you know, not believing anything I said anymore because they assumed that I was lying about everything. I, um, understood that, you know, people were going to treat me however they wanted without my consent or, um, and assumed that, I didn't know any better anyways. And and all of these, like um, I couldn't make any decisions that I shouldn't be allowed to make any decisions about my own life um, because I'm in that state. And like all of these things where like, you know, people would treat me, I think in a way that they thought I wasn't going to remember, but I remembered everything that happened. And unfortunately, there's this um, idea that someone who is in psychosis or mania has doesn't understand what's happening in front of them or around them. And that was definitely not the case for me, and um, for many of the people who I've spoken to who've had that experience, um, you know, since I I've had it when I we've had discussions, you know, we understand what's happening around us, we can, we can understand that we can remember it, um, but it's you know it's like the mania and psychosis is on another level layering on top of that and there is a there is a logic to that that we know how to access and we know so we know every like we know the reason behind what we're doing and what what we're saying and these decisions we're making other people don't and so they assume there is none and so that that's where there's this you know this gap in understanding where people are like oh that person doesn't know what they're talking about and you feel like no i do know what i'm talking about but i'm referring to things that you don't know because you also aren't asking me about it and you're assuming automatically that i don't know anything (laughs) and and so there's this you know way that that is very dehumanizing and people are assumed to you know um Mm -hmm not, not know anything and and all of this. So I, as I came out of the experience, it kind of was very informative in terms of, um, what that would feel like. And like the interior logic of the psychosis always makes sense to the person who's in psychosis. And so it was important for me to represent that as well as to represent, um, you know, what, is what what are in, in in essence kind of logic gaps in that experience where you you know what you thought was happening mm-hmm. like on this other layer that was over the top and sometimes that obscures what was happening in like what we would call i guess you know um our shared reality and so I, there's no way you can go back and know what happened then so you have this gap in your memory where it's like i don't know what really happened i can't i can't explain this and i wanted to keep that in the book for certain points because i didn't think it was fair if i was writing this experience in a way that was centering um the experience of of manian psychosis that alice and other people have had that you know that readers have that easy understanding of oh that's what happened when alice herself wouldn't have had that and mm-hmm. and in fact doesn't so I kind of wanted to kind of slide people in so that they would have a better understanding of how it actually feels when you're in that state and and also how the revelations that come, because there are revelations that happen kind of when you're in that state. Um, I feel like people who've been in drug kind of like states, you know, talk in similar ways about those experiences that we are expected to just throw them away when we when they're the result of mania or psychosis but when people have them on drug trips or whatever they're like yeah that's great that's so cool you talk to god and so it's just like this strange kind of um way of still saying anything that happens to us doesn't matter all of our experiences don't matter it's this continual dehumanization and i wanted to fight that by saying there are other other experiences and maybe that isn't Maybe you don't think that matters, but that matters to the person who had it.
1: You mentioned that you were already in research for this book when you had this episode yourself. Mm-hmm. Coming through that experience in 2020, did you think, yes, I, have, I want to share this experience that I have had in terms of the story that you were getting ready to write? Were you trying to decide what what stays in and what doesn't. How did you how did you process what you wanted to put on the page from what had been a very vivid personal experience?
0: Well, because I've already written nonfiction, I I know the um I know the uses for it. I know mm-hmm. um I'm I'm very aware also of of how nonfiction operates in terms of, you know, um You having like when you're writing nonfiction, you kind of have to have. It's very dependent on the reader trusting you as a narrator of your story. And when you go so through something where someone can label you as crazy or insane, you're automatically considered an unreliable narrator. So I knew that if I were to write this through non the nonfiction lens, I would be automatically fighting that assumption. And so it made more sense to do this through the lens of fiction because then you know there already is, there's far more of an understanding that, well, everyone is, in a sense, an unreliable narrator, but also that that is just something that is accepted in fiction as true, whereas there's this idea in nonfiction that you have to be a reliable narrator, whatever that means, and, you know, and and everything you say has to be truthful, or else, you know, your story is not valued, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, bearing that in mind when I was writing this as fiction and I was already planning on writing it, but I I feel like I came to it after that with kind of a, a, like a renewed vigor um, intellectually in terms of what I was trying to do. And uh, I, I knew that I wasn't going to include pretty much like nothing that happened to me or Mm -hmm. uh, none of my, um, nothing that happened to me or none of my, you know, delusions or hallucinations or anything like that appear in the book they're totally um Alice's and and they have to be Alice's because her her situation is so very um particular and so Mm -hmm. it has to be hers and so I was able to what I was able to do is have take that understanding of how often what's happening in terms of your delusions or your psychosis is very much informed by what's happening around you. So there is this interplay and I was able to kind of take that understanding and then apply it to Alice and her situation so that it made sense that like, oh yes, of course, she's already having these feelings that she's isolated in this community. So like when, you know, she starts to hear the house is talking to her saying you don't belong here. It feels very like, it makes sense that she mm-hmm. would think that because she is already feeling that. And so it's kind of like those thoughts are informing this other layer of reality that's over the top.
1: So let's go back a little bit because you, you mentioned this was a project that you already had underway that you had started research on this. Was this the book that you thought you would be writing when you kicked it off? Or did you have a different idea in mind altogether at the beginning?
0: I don't mean to laugh. It's just kind of funny because it's like gone through so many iterations at this point. Um,
1: It was originally a children's book and it was about cars.
0: Yes, exactly. Right. Okay. Um, it It was originally a short story that I wrote when I was like, I wouldn't, I want to say I was 19, um, maybe 20. And so it was, um, uh, so I had my son when I was 17. I got pregnant with him. I was 18 when I had him. And then, um, I went to university like immediately and I I was with him for a month and then, you know, I would come home every weekend to be with him. And in between, I was like, every four hours I was in my dorm room pumping breast milk to bring home to him. And so it was, um, It was very disorienting and alienating. And I felt like um, also even despite having like, you know, I had a midwife, I had doula, I had uh, people around me who were very familiar with um, the process of giving birth and what happens to your body. And yet I still felt like in some ways I had been lied to about (laughs) what that experience entails. And so um, even just uh, like physically, in terms of how your body changes after you have a baby in these ways, you don't realize and so you know it was something that when i wanted to write a short story it occur- like it occurred to me i wanted to write about that i wanted to write about those um ways in which we are surprised by this experience of motherhood because you can never be totally prepared for it but also i feel like we could be a little bit more prepared for it if people were a little bit more honest about kind of what you're facing And so it was very much about that initially. And then, you know, um, uh, it kind of went from there because I, I also, I feel like in some ways I was lying to myself about the kind of writer I was because I was like, oh, we have to write literary works. We have to write, you know, you can't, it has to be all very realism, literary realism and all of that. And that had never been what I loved reading the most I loved reading stuff that was a little bit weirder that was kind of experimenting with things that was maybe kind of flirting with like dark themes and stuff like that and so I um it took me a while to figure that out and then I was like lying to myself but then once I did I I was like okay how can I combine these or like how can I how can I what can I do with this because it was a story that was kind of out of control and like it was too long to be a short story I was like should I make this a novella like what should I do um and you know this is they always say like hold on to all of your drafts you never know what you're going to do with them but there was another short story I had written that had never clicked and I realized that like the character was the same um from like uh so the prologue is basically that short story which is Alice kind of as a young person and what happens that you need to know before everything happens when she is a mother in toronto and that past kind of gets drawn back up essentially so it was like it it went through many different iterations as i was trying to figure these things out and you know bringing in um different genre elements like horror and like i guess in some ways i don't know about sci-fi but like fantastical elements, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, that all just was like fun for me. I wanted it to be like fun in some ways. You know, like we we have these books that yes, we can tackle serious subjects, but we can also have fun. We can um have humor. We can have lightness in certain moments. And I kind of wanted to have that. And so yeah, it just allowed me to do that in ways that I don't think if I was trying to, you know, be literary fiction realism then it would not be, it wouldn't have worked
1: and one of the things i love is that where the weird stuff comes in is also often where the funny bits show up you have this kind of sarcastic chorus extra narrator who seems to be writing the chapter titles um <laughs> and there's also a a cockroach who seems to have very low job satisfaction <laughs> <laughs> about its role of providing spiritual guidance and so was was that just you finding the the tones and the um and the the kind of the accents that made it feel like a book that you were going to love
0: yeah it was very much that i was i wanted to like the, there was stuff that surprised me and that's always the fun i think in writing is when you know you think you know what's going to happen and then all of a sudden here comes this cockroach and you're like hey okay what are you what do you have to say and all of a sudden now you're thinking of what the culture of and history of the cockroaches throughout time and how long they've been alive and all of this stuff right and um you know wanting to have you know this unassuming figure that everyone kind of cringes at and hates you know is like the cockroach in toronto you're like oh god <laughs> And and having this like, you know, having fun with it, I guess it was that's the 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 fun part is all of the the weird stuff. And so that was the stuff that kept me interested because I get very bored very easily. <laughs> um, and I have like a terrible attention span. So I have to be continually surprising myself to keep myself interested. And that's how I like my books to be when I read them is uh, I want them to be books that, Something weird happened. You're like, wait, what? And so you keep reading, and are like, what's where? Where is this going? And so, I wanted to really kind of create that kind of effect, but also, um, you know, obviously in editing, it was very mindful of how all of the threads came together in a way mm-hmm. where where it was surprising, but also it makes sense if you go back and reread. Yeah, so.
1: we'll come back to Alice. But I wanted to ask you about Steve, her husband, whose job has taken them to Toronto, where he's an academic chasing tenure. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about him?
0: Yeah. um, So in the very earliest drafts, I didn't know what I wanted him, his job to be. It was kind of just whatever. But as I was kind of, as I was writing um, and I was clearer about what, that this was going to be a book. Um, I really started thinking a lot about uh, Haudenosaunee culture, and that is what Alice is trying to write. She's trying to write of uh, her own version of um, the Haudenosaunee creation story of Sky Woman and everything, and so when I was kind of doing that research, um, which there's so many different versions of the story, and so I, I was doing all of this research, I um, happened to come across uh, Rick Montour's book. He is um, you know, uh, a knowledge keeper and a language teacher on um, my res. and he he's done a lot of research into the writings coming from Six Nations. And I remember reading uh, in his book, "We Share Our Matters," this um, that he he was talking about how basically um, academics coming and studying our people, which you know um, uh, they were they called us the Iroquois. We were. Th- that was kind of like the the foundation for U.S. anthropology was this studying and there would be so many academics who were coming and studying us and then they were taking their findings and going and publishing and creating these great careers for themselves creating a field of, of study um where they had you know they had all of this power and we had none um in terms of how our culture was um was represented how it was understood and, and what was happening with it. And so that was something that really struck me, um, in particular, because I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of experience with academics, and um, you know, uh, not just white academics, there's something about the academy that requires you to kind of keep everything at a distance and keep your community at a distance and theorize about these abstract things. And we're all talking about these abstract things with these long words that only we understand. And so the communities that we're theorizing about, therefore can't actually engage in the conversation and speak back. And so there's been this long history of, of that with my community. And so I wanted to, I thought it made perfect sense for him to, for Steve to be someone who was engaging in that same behavior today, um, doing it through the, the the lens of, oh, well, he's consulting her mom and he gives her credit and he pays her for her knowledge. But at the end of the day, he's his name is still the name on the book, on the thesis. And he's the one who's who gets the credit for publishing knowledge that hasn't been published before about indigenous, you know, he was looking into um you know planting and and everything and so um you know the seed keeping knowledge and stuff like that is no longer just for our people it's for other people to look at and to use for whatever they want want and i think that that, that play between um the academy and studying groups of people that uh, especially there's this notion that we're we're a dying race or you know what I mean like we have to study these people before they're dead and then keep knowledge about them in weird ways um there's still like you know even going to the the level of museums there's still like museums that hold you know bodies of um of people who were colonized inside their museums that they refuse to to give back and so you know there's this long history of of when we think about colonization, we generally think about land, and that is true. But also there is this, this stealing of information, the stealing of bodies, the stealing of culture and all of the, and language in all of these ways. And it's to keep it and hoard it, you know, and not to have it for people to access who still need it in those communities that you're kind of pilfering from. So, yeah, I thought I wanted to really I thought that that made the most sense for Steve. And, you know, he he. I think he means well, but he also doesn't understand totally the history that he's entombed in and how he's kind of um, he how he's recreating these same problems, I suppose, that he thinks that he's helping to solve.
1: And he's a climber. He's, uh, you know, he's he's on the hunt for tenure and he's a you know very much a part of that that world of academia where mm-hmm. everything has the potential to count on that application for the next rung in your career, and and how how easy it is you know if if you're Alice to see everything as you know just an accumulation of that social credit score including her including her child including you know all of the knowledge that her family's provided to him it's uh it's it's easy to see that as a like a um <laughs> it's essentially a vacuum cleaner of uh you know of of cultural value
0: yeah absolutely and that's something that is where when you're when you're really feeling very paranoid and stuff like that you clutch on to those things right we're like does this person really care about me or what am i to them you know and and that you start to dissect those things and I think that that happens a lot when, especially, you know, we're, we're already depressed about the situation we're in. We feel like we can't talk to our partner. Our partner is, feel, is um, seeming like they're doing great and they don't seem to to care about what's happening with us. So I think that that's, you know, something that you need. Everyone has those, I think, things that they can clutch on to and, you know, um, whether, you think that, you know, I, I leave it to the reader to kind of interpret Steve as they see fit. Um, because I I didn't want to have him be this like cartoonish villain, although uh, I think some, depending on on how you read him, you can think that he's very villainous. Um, or you can think that he's kind of just like he's he's engaging in that kind of um like um we were kind of talking about before that this this plausible deniability of like, oh, I meant well, you know, and what does that mean when you mean well and the actions are still ultimately creating problems, you know? What where is that line between intention and effect? And does that attention matter if the effect is still the same?
1: And it's it's a balancing act that occurs throughout the book. You you have Steve's actions, you have Alice's inner monologue, you know, interpreting and reinterpreting those actions. And then there's you know, there's you as the reader going, Well, you know, maybe he's fine, or maybe he isn't, or um or seeing Alice hearing characters speaking about her or um or maybe about her, intuiting contempt. And passive aggression, which often turns out to be accurate. Let's be let's be clear. <laughs> and what's constant isn't that Alice is wrong or crazy, but that she's suffering. Yes, you know that sometimes it's magnified or it's changed by what's going on with her mentally, uh, based on how she's taking things here. But the suffering is real, mm. and and so were you mindful of of tipping the reader one way or the other between sympathy or lack of sympathy both for steve and for alice as you were as you were setting up this series of balancing acts
0: yeah i wanted to i wanted to kind of make it so that you could understand what how someone could see both Alice and Steve as both you know as as likable but also as flawed I wanted um their flaws to be not something that was hidden but something that was apparent and so um in that sense that's always for me what creates realistic characters is you know is yes sure they can be likable or they can be unlikable but there has to be some sense of like of duality there because no one is all one thing or the other there's always like a a blend of the two and so you know Steve can be in one scene really kind with her really great with Dawn and you can see how if those are the moments that are in your mind you can think oh wow he's a great father he's a great dad and then you see kind of these situations where maybe he's under stress and he he's he says something in the heat of the moment that's harmful. And, you know, I feel like that's also very realistic to how we all kind of operate, you know, um, when everything is great, of course, it's fine, you know, to we're we're going to be our best versions of ourselves. But when, you know, all of a sudden, there's these other things that are piling up in the background, where a situation is going to have more significance, like, you know, in, in the book, Steve has, has put a lot of pressure on himself and on Alice for this dinner party because it's leading up to tenure. So you have to make sure that you know everything is all in place. And so then, when she doesn't act in a way that he wants her to, or he thinks she should, then all of a sudden he will snap. And I think that those are those are things that are are how we all kind of act. And it's the same with Alice. You know, she she gets upset when things are like when she's very stressed as well and then all of a sudden she says something and you know that's kind of I I wanted to be very mindful that like that it wasn't all going to be one way or the other so you could Mm -hmm. look back and you could say okay well yes as you know yes Alice is right in these instances but maybe she's being a little harsh in this instance and you know um maybe you know Steve is being an in this instance but he's also pretty nice to her and sweet to her in these instances so I wanted there to be both
1: Alice is the daughter of a storyteller um, and has taken on some of that role herself she's decided and then promised to write a new telling of the Haudenosaunee creation story of Sky Woman um, but she has questions and doubts about Own abilities. Her father was a gifted storyteller. Those stories came to her through him. But the doubt and the uncertainty about passing them on is almost crippling to her. I I don't know any writer who has not hit that wall um, (laughs) at one time or another. But how much bigger are the stakes when we're talking about the stories that are core to a people's sense of the world? and their place in it and was that was that something that you wanted to try and capture?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's something that, you know, kind of going back to the earlier conversation, um, you know, with uh Rick Montour kind of talking about how all our culture has such a history of being narrated by people who are not us. Um that means that, you know, uh when that happens to to people, to an identifiable group of people, then they are uh, very, very much more aware <laughs> than other people of the weight of representation and of what that means in terms of how other people see you, understand you, respect you, or don't and um, or think they know everything. And then, you know, if that's all false information that they're they're using, then you have to deal with the ramifications. Your community has to deal with the ramifications of that negative perspective or stereotype that's placed upon you and so um you know as I was writing it you know I was grappling with the same questions Alice's I was like oh man is this gonna be like like, I'm writing about this my community is very very vocal so if they don't like this they're gonna be mad and so you know um I think that you know when you're coming from a community that that knows these stories and cares about these stories and knows how much that reflects our perspective our culture our history um I think for me it was because it was a uh, like that was occurring to me it made sense that that would also occur to Alice um especially as someone who knows that you know also storytelling is uh, you know often men are the ones who are her who are taking that on and so okay, if I'm telling this as an Indigenous woman, I want to make sure that, you know, that that is re- reflected and represented properly when you're talking about Sky Woman and what happened with her, you know, with, you're going to have different understandings of of her than a man would, you know? And so, especially her as a pregnant woman who is then falling to earth. So, you know, I really wanted to, to be very open about that and have people considering it because this is also, like like you said, this is something that all writers kind of grapple with is, you know, and maybe it's not always necessarily about representing a specific culture, but it is about telling a story and ha- knowing the, the weight of words and the responsibility you have in putting those words together in a particular way so that people who read it understand it hopefully, in the way that you intend them to.
1: Much to Alice's annoyance, Steve has a gift for learning Mohawk. As as you said earlier, he's studying it, he's taking classes in it. And there's a part where she's thinking about how casually he speaks this language um, that was nearly extinguished. And you pick up on this point of tension that it's just a language to him, but his central and sacred to Alice, but she also gets that the language needs to be used and be just a language in order to thrive. Is that tension between something sacred and precious on one hand and something that should be out in the world, kind of getting dirt on it? Is that is that something that you, you know, that you've landed on one side or the other of?
0: Um, I think that when something is still rare and there's still this like um there's still this lack of um common knowledge for example of the language then that means that of course understanding and knowing it is going to mean more whereas if if a lot of people know it then you know someone saying a word wrong or something doesn't mean as much it doesn't you know it's not as big of a deal and so I think it's always uh, for me it's always a matter of that like I would love if if Mohawk became a language that, you know, so many people knew that it was just casual. And and in that case, then it really wouldn't matter one way or the other. We could we could all speak Mohawk, that would be great. But we're not at that point yet. And so, you know, even thinking about like real life, you know, not to be able to find a point on it, but, you know, um, the Minister of Indigenous Services right now is a man named Mark Miller who learned Mohawk. And, uh, he spoke Mohawk in parliament before he was appointed to this position and he learned from my community and, you know, and so great, he learned from our community that leveraged him into a very powerful position in government that he did not have before. And yet what has he done to help with our language? He hasn't made, done any, made any serious effort to make it so that, um, our Mohawk language programs are not still fighting for every single dollar, where we don't have enough funding to make sure that the people who want to learn, all of them, are funded to learn in any given year. Because it's a very, very time-consuming language to learn. Like you have to be there every day from like nine to three or four, Monday to Friday, for years to ha- to under to get to a point where you can converse in Mohawk in a comfortable way and have some degree of fluency and so you know that means that you can't really hold a job in a typical way if you're trying to do that so we then need funding to make it so that adults who are trying to learn this and pass this on to their kids have that funding we don't have that funding Mark Miller has the ability to you know he benefited from that so Mm -hmm. now what's he doing with that? And that's where I always come back to is like, what are you doing with that now? And are you going to give back to the communities that helped you? Because he didn't learn that by himself. He learned that through teachers. He learned that in a classroom with people who helped talk with him so that he could understand better. And that's where I always come back to is, you know, yes, of course, I would love if a whole bunch of people knew Mohawk but we're not at that point yet. So the people who are learning it, especially people who are coming from outside the culture, need to also, I think, be aware of their own responsibility to then help us so that we mm-hmm. can have more people, especially our own people, but more people in general, knowing our language by having that funding. And, you know, so it's, it kind of is complex in that way, but also not that complex.
1: There is an essay in your book, uh, mind Spread Out on the Ground, called Dark Matter. And it is an elegant mirroring of research into dark matter in the universe, which is theorized around effects it has, even though it can't be seen. And the effects of racism, which can be clearly seen, even if it's harder to get people to see the racism, the act itself. Do you feel like in this move from nonfiction into fiction and... Um, and bringing these characters forward that you got closer to showing the shape of some of those effects by bringing this story into view?
0: I hope so. Um, it's always hard to gauge, um, you know, uh, what whether you accomplish what you set out to accomplish. Really, the only way to tell is by, you know, is having readers read it and then tell you what they think. So, you know, I think that that's something I, I hope for um but it also is you know it's dependent on the reader and i'm i am thankful for anyone who who reads the work however they engage with it that's always going to be a gift you always hope that you know people will take from it what you what you wanted them to take from it but there's so little you can do once it's published it's out there so i mean i did my best while i was <laughs> writing to make it so that that was there and um something that people could take away but you know um Uh, for me personally when I'm especially when I'm reading fiction I also want that entertainment element right and I think that that also in some ways and um is a great way to kind of get that education piece in through entertainment so I was really hoping that the book would be entertaining and page turning in, in a way that was you know um yes had that education element and had that element of like, you know, trying to have people see these things that maybe they wouldn't see, but in a way that felt like exciting and interesting mm-hmm. and was it didn't feel so much like you're sitting down and like, okay, here's this, here's what we're teaching today. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't want that.
1: <laughs> now let's have a chapter of exposition. <laughs> yes.
0: Exactly. So <laughs>
1: you talked earlier about how much more easily fiction can encompass some of these issues like mental illness. You know, narrators don't have to be objectively reliable. Perception and perspective can be slippery. And as you were getting ready for this book, were there other authors or storytellers you were looking to who you felt handled this really well, who, um, who let you see different ways that fiction could give us at least a glimpse of what was going on inside a person's head.
0: Mm. Uh yeah, there um so I'm someone who um who does a lot of research when I'm writing and so I will read anything that I find that is somewhat related in terms of content
1: are you one of those people who loves the research part like
0: it's it's I do at to the point where it becomes a problem and that it's like I need to put it down because I need to actually write um but what was fun with this was I I wanted to see how other writers had portrayed um psychosis and and things like that in fiction and there is a book called the faces by and it's about uh, a mother who kind of has this, falls into psychosis, and then she's in a mental hospital and then she comes out. And that was um, a great book. And especially like in, you know, later in the book, there's like an element of faces that I thought was, it was a, an interesting mirror because I had already had that kind of idea. And I was like, oh, this is so perfect. And so, uh, you know, seeing how she kind of did that was was great. Um, and then even in terms of not necessarily the same content, but tone, um, I, I love Eden Robinson's work and, and particularly the Trickster series where she was dealing with, you know, um, very modern indigenous like characters who were who were kind of struggling with um, these ancient kind of um monsters or you know different magical beings
1: they all have a gods and monsters problem
0: yes <laughs> exactly and her tone I love her tone and all of her work and so you know I'm always very mindful of how she writes and I I get a lot of inspiration from her because she just does it so well she's so funny she's so clever and um and yeah I just like I can't say enough good things about her writing she's just brilliant so <laughs> she was someone who I also kind of pulled from and then in terms of like the element of wonder I, I always kind of turn to um Heather O'Neill and even though um our you know we're not writing about the same things I she has the, there's just this element of like I said wonder to all of her work that makes you just like feel like everything is just a little bit more magical I suppose even when you're talking she's talking about something that's happening in the 1800s and like the poorest part of Montreal and I think that 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 element is something that I kind of really admire in her work and hope that I can kind of use to whatever effect I (laughs) want to use it to in in my work so yeah different different elements different things I kind of pick and pull from whoever.
1: You've referenced gothic fiction a couple of times as as we've been talking, and you wrote a few years ago about the rise of horror writing by indigenous authors. And since then, we've seen Stephen Graham Jones being reviewed in mainstream publications, and Jessica John's Bad Cree was a was a big hit this year we just had Wob rice on the show talking about moon of the crusted snow and its sequel and so do you feel like you know horror is a place that you might might want to hang out in for a while as a as a fiction author
0: yes <laughs> i already have um i already have my ideas for the next time and i i just feel like it's going to be much like uh, this book's already kind of weird but this one's going to be weird and maybe a little bit more graphic <laughs> so I'm already having like fun and also like gagging <laughs> like the possibility so <laughs> which for me is fun I mean I I love horror so that's something that that I personally enjoy um but yes like you know fair warning it will get weird and creepy and gross so <laughs>
1: You heard it here first. (laughs) Alicia, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I've been speaking with Alicia Elliott, author of And Then She Fell. Find it and all of the books we've spoken about at Kobo and Conversations home on the web, kobo.com slash conversation. Check the show notes for a link. Subscribe in your podcast player to catch every episode, and if you enjoyed this one, share it with someone who makes you feel heard when you most need it. Kobo in Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.